Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely. This is the podcast. And if you're listening to it, that makes you one of the friends. Uh, boy, like, I I, I, I I, don't really have, like, I want to say nothing happened this week. But, like, you know, a lot of things have happened this week. I, I've, I'm really enjoying the fact that now that I've graduated from university, 100% of my time is my own again to do it as I please. So I've been working on art full time. Oh, yeah, I mean, I guess the big news this week is that I'm doing some recording in a studio. Um, the next door to where I'm staying here in LA is a music studio, so I've been recording my new album there. So uh, I've, got, I've got a sort of semi listen toable track uh, that you can hear uh, later in the podcast, so stay tuned for that. I mean, stay tuned, of course. Like, I mean, maybe maybe people listen to like a couple minutes of this and, and tap over to something else. Yeah, I'm I'm genuinely curious about that. Whenever I think about things, because like you know, if if you look at sort of like on YouTube, uh, like how long someone watches a particular video, it's it's really really fascinating. Uh, Although, you know, I, I gave up on analytics a long time ago. I, I produced this podcast in the hopes that someone will listen to it. But to be perfectly honest, I I produce it for myself first. You know, it's something that I make for me. And I hope other people like it or get something out of it. But at the same time, the exercise of writing the pieces that I present on here and sort of the excuse to have chats with interesting people when I can safely do interviews are why I do this. Uh, and the fact that I kind of package it into a product is secondary. You know, there, there are people who support this podcast through Patreon, and, and I hope that they're enjoying it as well. But even if nobody was listening to this, I would keep making it, because I think I think that's what we should be doing with art. Yeah, I I don't know. That was... wasn't expecting to go there, but uh, yeah, let's... Uh, <laughs> Let's do a podcast. Something to do. I'm just gonna raise that up a little bit higher so I can see the button. I have to edit out this part because I bet it sounds horrible. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> Strangely recommends in 200 words or less. Including these 11. Who imposed this rule? Altoids. I love everything about the classic, curiously strong mints. From their old-timey presentation in a metal tin to their strong flavor. Some of this might be nostalgia, as they were the only candy my mother ever had in her purse. These would be dispensed at the beginning of the sermon every Sunday morning. A patient child could slowly savor the morsel for a about 20 minutes, which was the length of a typical sermon at our church. If the Altoid ran out and Pastor George Bedlian, that is totally his name, was still preaching, it meant one of two things. You'd used your teeth on the mint too much, or, as I always preferred to think of it, he'd spent too much of his sermon imitating a woman giving birth. True story. 
Not only are they tasty, the empty tins are useful. You can stuff them full of loose change, old thumbtacks, extra bags of tea, even photos of old flames. You can use them to make Wii survival kits. They make a delightful container for a couple of joints and two fun-sized candy bars. I really love Altoids. Huh. What I've been reading. This week, I have been working my way through a nonfiction book called This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends by Nicole Pelroth, and it is all about sort of the completely unremarked upon world of cybersecurity, specifically the ways that nation states are hacking each other like crazy. Uh, for a couple of decades, the United States had the largest stockpile of uh, what they call zero days, which are hacks that can break into software, but no one's found them yet. They're called zero days because once they are found, the company has zero days to patch the problem. Uh, so uh, Pelros' book is about how the United States has spent the last 20 years focusing on offensive capability and hasn't really thought about defending itself against these cyber attacks. It's an incredibly frightening book. You know, I've, I've read a lot and thought a lot about sort of the way that interacting with technology affects our minds, you know, things like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but I haven't really thought about the ways that it affects our society at large and, and, and even beyond that, how it could affect us in very, very uh, concrete ways. So this isn't just something where it's like, we're talking about a society having, you know, some sort of moral or psychological problem. This is like a power grid could be shut down or something like that. It's an absolutely terrifying book. It's it's really well written and she's she, she is a really interesting writer and you know, she kind of injects a lot of her own personality into the narrative cuz she's she's a, a woman who's who's breaking into what is often a very masculine space. You know, there's hackers and uh, NSA analysts and things like that. It's a, it's a very male-dominated realm. And yet she's going in there and producing really top-notch reporting. Uh, she was one of the New York Times correspondents who was in charge of going through all the Snowden leaks back in, I think, 2014. So it's, it's a really, really fascinating, very up-to-the-minute book. Uh, and I know I don't really talk about current events on this podcast, but... I think the the history of sort of the the shadow side of the internet coming up over the last 20 30 years is really really fascinating because it kind of dovetails with some of the silicon valley things. You know, Google is this company that their motto is don't be evil and yet, you know, some of the things that they do are not the greatest stuff they're doing, you know, with customer data and stuff. But at the same time, like, they're also being hacked. You know, Google is like, it's so weird. Like, Google is fighting China to keep China from hacking them while also sometimes making concessions to how China wants the internet to be run. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, I'm not sure I can recommend the book. I don't really, it's, a, it's the kind of book I don't really know who it's for because I feel like if anybody actually is already into cybersecurity, they probably know more than the book is going to talk about. And if they don't know about cybersecurity, it feels like it's too nerdy. I, 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 yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating book. If you're at all curious in the ways that really we've moved beyond, uh, 
nuclear weapons into, I guess you could call it digital weapons, cyber weapons, uh, zero days. This is, this is a great book for that. Um, it's terrifying. Let's talk about something else. Here's something I've been mulling. Jokes should feel good. Actually, let's broaden that a bit. Comedy should feel good. One of the wonderful things that has been happening during the past year and change of quarantine is that many artists have finally been able to sit down and spend serious energy on creating their dream project. I know of numerous novels, screenplays, comedy sets, and feature films that are currently being worked on by incredible people across the world in whatever places they managed to land before everything closed down. <laughs> I can't wait to see what kind of a show a fringe performer friend of mine is going to make after being stuck in, stuck in Australia for going on two years now. Among the oddest pieces of work currently under construction is a brand new circle show. As the show has taken shape, its creator, a dear friend of mine, in a strange and faraway land, has taken to calling me on the phone to rap about bits and pieces of the show. It's thrilling knowing that I'm one of the early ears for something that will eventually hold hundreds of people on the knife's edge between endearment and terror. Sometimes I get to hear a demo of a line or a joke. Others I get to wax philosophical about my own experiences in the circle and the hard lessons I learned there. A brief aside for the uninitiated. A circle show is a large performance usually done on the street, or sometimes in a plaza, or perhaps in a fairgrounds. A performer marks out a large circle on the ground and then gathers an audience around themselves. If you've ever seen a troop of jugglers at a fair or watched some maniac on a unicycle screaming at old ladies about how he'll call them later, you can probably picture it fairly well. For about 10 years, I made most of my fiscal living doing a show like this. I would gather a crowd and then do a few juggling tricks, followed by my grand finale, a cheek-clenching balance, high in the air on the arms of two unsuspecting audience volunteers. If you were ever one of those volunteers and you're listening to this, thank you so much. Circle shows, and any street performing for that matter, are an odd beast in the world of art. You're out in the middle of the action, competing with every crying baby, hawking vendor, honking car, yapping dog, and asshole photographer with a camera lens the size of a toilet bowl for the attention of the passing crowd. As a result, one of two things happens. You either get very entertaining and crowd-stopping very quickly, or you burn out, quit street performing, and go do something else. All street performers are loud, either with the music they play, the words they shout, or the exciting and interesting outfits they wear. No matter what it is, it is screaming, PAY ATTENTION! If you fail to develop this sort of thing, you will probably not make it as a street performer. Sure, there are numerous street performers who quietly strum and sing a soulful tune, but they're usually choosing a quiet little corner someplace to do it. So we're right back to being loud, or at least louder than what's around them. The performer also has to be able to think fast, very, very fast. In fact, many incredible fast-thinking comedians came from street performing. Robin Williams, for example, developed his rapid-fire scattershot impression-based flailing in the pressure cooker of street performing. Ditto Eddie Izzard. It is imperative that once you have the audience's attention, you hold on to it and do not let it slip, even for an instant. The film Kubo has an excellent example of this. The protagonist begins a magical street show by admonishing the audience, If you must blink, do it now. Pay careful attention to everything you see and hear, no matter how unusual it may seem. And please be warned, if you fidget, if you look away, if you forget any part of what I tell you, even for an instant, then our hero will surely perish. 
This kind of hook pulls the audience in and gets them invested. Unfortunately, it's rarely the kind of hook that works on busy people walking around on a hot day. It's easy to keep people engaged when they've got a comfy chair in an air-conditioned theater. So what does this have to do with comedy? Well, simply put, street performers often stoop to the lowest common denominator of humor in order to attract attention. It's a very fine line to walk. Sure, if you're young and cute and charming, you could probably get away with some pretty raunchy stuff, but really, what does it help? The ultimate goal of a street performance is to get the audience to open their wallets and pay you for your work, despite not having committed to do so up front. Having performed thousands of street shows and watched hundreds more by other performers, I think endearing yourself to the audience is key to attaining this goal. Managing to keep their attention without crossing lines is incredibly difficult. Which brings me to considerations of how comedy makes people feel. Years ago, I read a book called The Rant Zone by Dennis Miller. I have no idea how it got into my hands. I must have been about 14 and had little use for essays on things like the Clintons, in which Miller referred to Bill as a, quote, drunken Bacchus with his penis for a scepter, unquote. I was, however, enamored with an essay Miller wrote on the word fuck. I will never forget the closing lines of the piece, quote, from its fricative genesis to its long, lush middle until it's cruelly truncated in its prime by a vicious glottal stop. Fuck is almost as satisfying to say as it is to do. Unquote. I, yeah, I, I, I just, I just want to add like an addendum. This isn't in the script, but um, I guess Miller is like working for Russian television now. He has a show on RT America, which is just bizarre. And he like interviews celebrities, like like actual celebrities you've heard of, like William Shatner and Giancarlo Esposito. It's it's bizarre. Um, he's a very weird character. Uh, and again, I read that book when I was 14. I, ha I am unfamiliar with almost anything Miller has done since then, other than the fact that I Googled him and learned that he has a show on Russian television. Anyway, where was I? Uh, yeah, almost as satisfying to say as it is to do, unquote. Needless to say, as a teenager, I took this as gospel truth. Until years later, when I would finally hear the counterpoint that would send my thinking off in a completely different direction. The comedian Jerry Seinfeld, I know, it's hard to talk about comedy without referencing a lot of these guys, just, let's just roll with it for now. I, I'll probably write a piece at some point on that. But anyway, Jerry Seinfeld. He once compared the word fuck to a Ferrari. Now that might need a bit of explaining, because it certainly did for me, as I am not a quote, car person. The analogy breaks down like this. Jerry is a car person who collects fancy one-of-a-kind cars. You know, the kind of stuff that makes a Rolls-Royce look like a Muppet's jalopy. To Jerry, a Ferrari is a flashy, loud, overpriced pile of a car that screams, Look at me! I have more money than sense! Putting aside the hilarity of Jerry Seinfeld thinking someone else has more money than sense, this is a great analogy for the word fuck. Sure, coarseness can get a lot done very quickly, but it rarely leaves a lasting sense of endearment. Speaking of Seinfeld, if you want an even starker example of this concept, just take a look at the time Michael Richards, you know, Kramer, used a racial slur to refer to some black members of his audience. To be sure, the moment had impact, but I don't think it left many people loving the dude. For an artist, there is an incredible temptation to take advantage of the inherent impact that will result from crossing lines like this. 
After all, to use a phrase associated with P.T. Barnum, there's no such thing as bad publicity. You know, Barnum may very well have appropriated the phrase from someone else, but I will leave his rampant peculation for another time. The point is a good one, though. If people are talking about your art, at least they're talking. We have all experienced the feeling of being ignored. Sometimes it's just in a conversation, but occasionally it is in something far larger, a relationship, a life devoted to a particular artistic value. We measure ourselves against the achievements of contemporaries who seem to rise in stature precisely because they are abrasive. The temptation to engage in similar bad behavior is difficult to suppress. This is doubly true in the highly stimulating environment of street performing, or the firehose of content that is Twitter or other online social media platforms. So all this begs the question, what kind of comedy is good for endearing you to an audience? I would argue it's comedy that feels good. Think about it for a moment. We can all remember a time when we laughed so hard our abs hurt, or perhaps our side split, we bust a gut, or we could scarcely breathe. And then, when the laughter finally died down, what remained? There was a warm afterglow, a kind of floating release of tension, like sitting in a hot tub, or the first drag on a post-coital cigarette, or the feeling of pulling off your shoes after a long day at work. Oh man, that last one. Laughter can release that in you. It can take you to a tension-free zone of calm, simple joy where cares can be, at least for a moment, forgotten. I don't know if it's true, but I've heard that laughter and crying are the same thing biologically. Like your, your, your physical body reads them much the same way and there's kind of a similar release that happens. I don't know if that's totally true, but I, I've definitely had experiences where I've crossed between those two states and they do feel somewhat interchangeable. So, you know, comedy can give you laughter, which can take you to somewhere that will allow you to release. This is not an argument for sweet, happy pabulum. Please do not un misunderstand what I'm suggesting here. I have witnessed pieces of comedy that destroyed me, works that made me cry on the way to making me laugh, or vice versa. Comedy can, and most assuredly should, go to some dark places. The best readily available examples of this that I can reference, you know, outside of small fringe shows that I've seen and things like that, are Patton Oswalt's 2017 comedy special Annihilation and Tignataro's Live. Both performances share incredibly dark experiences in the artist's lives. For Patton, it is the death of his wife and the subsequent attempts to explain it to his young daughter. And for Tig, it's a breakup in the midst of fighting cancer. And yet, each show is a masterclass in shepherding the audience through the darkest possible reaches of the human experience in a way that provides more laughter than tears. A story from my own life. Four years ago, I finally got to sit down with one of my dearest friends and catch up on what we had happening in our lives in the two years since we were able to see each other in person. Since we were both internationally touring performance artists, our schedules rarely line up and the intervening period had been one of the darkest in my adult life. During that time, I had struggled with suicidal ideation stronger than anything since my suicide attempt at the age of 15. Don't worry, I'm fine now. This is four years ago. Um, I'm, I'm in a really good place right now. It's a little too warm here, but 
I, I can't really complain. My friend then calmly sat and listened to everything I had to say. I don't think he spoke for a quarter of an hour or more. When I finally finished, he said something to the effect of, Well, I'm glad you didn't commit suicide, because if you had, I would have had to. And he then proceeded to tell me a long, highly detailed story about the epic journey he would have to go through to get himself to my hometown before I was buried, all in the service of violating my corpse in front of my shocked and appalled family. As his disgusting shaggy dog joke of an imagined response to my suicide crash-landed in explosive prurient glory, I was laughing harder than I had in years, tears streaming down my face. And then I was crying, and then laughing, and then I could not tell which. Grossness aside, the message of my friend's tale was clear. He loved me very much, and would be disappointed if I died. Instead of just expressing that sentiment in as many words, he chose to make it a long and involved story with very little point, turning a contemplation of my demise into a shaggy dog joke of epic proportions. You've got to understand, I love shaggy dog jokes so much, and I felt very seen by my friend in this moment. It was also the kind of response that said, I have sat here with you and gone into the darkest place you chose to take me because I am your friend. Now I will take your hand and lead you back out of that place to the one where we exist together, in the laughing daylight. My friend did not just tell me to be happy again, he made me happy again. That's the secret key of an interaction like this, really. The end result of the journey he took me on was one where we both felt elated, lifted up, and closer to one another than we had been previous to that interaction. The end result, the net effect on the soul of the person experiencing the comedy is, at least to me, what is important. Not the intent of the joke, sometimes not even the substance. This is why jokes which go after the downtrodden and the dispossessed, colloquially referred to as punching down, aren't great. Sure, there might be a brief flash of amusement, but the lasting feeling is not a good one. Particularly if you are one of those bearing the brunt of the joke. This is not to say that the only good joke to tell someone is a worthless piece of fluff like, Wow, you're so smart. Uh, Einstein looks d dumb compared to you. Okay, give me a break here. We all know what kind of jokes I'm talking about, but I have a hard time making my brain work in Adventures in Odyssey mode. What is that? Oh, boy. Uh, okay, fastest possible version. Adventures in Odyssey is a weekly Christian radio drama produced by Focus on the Family. It was appointment listening in my childhood and was the first introduction I had to serialized soap opera inflected storytelling. Whenever they tried to write bad guys like gang members, they would often say things like, I'm gonna kick your backside into yesterday you can almost hear the voice actors having trouble with the unrealistic dialogue where was i insults yes even insults can be uplifting if they are delivered in a very particular way the insult comedian jeff ross once gave an interview to npr's terry gross wow just writing that sentence reminds me of how incongruous that whole thing was terry was in full unctuous NPR tones, asking questions like, what is it about shouting that makes people pay attention? 
What was most striking about the interview, at least to me, was listening to Jeff Ross actually settle down and talk about what motivates what he does. At one point, he said something to the effect of, you cannot truly insult someone without knowing them. A good insult comic insults a person in a way that makes them feel seen and helps them laugh at themselves. Ross, who specializes in insulting his audience members, explains the concept by referencing a particular member of a particular audience he had one time. Ross could have made fun of the man's weight, but he did not. That was too easy, too obvious, and frankly, it's not like the man did not know. Instead, Ross, after a brief conversation with the man, discovered that he worked at a, as a particular kind of corporate lawyer. The exchange turned into a back and forth where the two of them started dunking on the man's profession and society's expectations of it and things that people in the man's profession did. I, I wish I could express how, like, like the exact tone that Ross had while explaining this. There was so much kindness in this story. The point was, Ross made the man feel more seen and actually comfortable in a way that would have never happened if he had just gone for the surface-level insult about the man's physical appearance. To Ross, that is what insult comedy is about, finding the thing that people laugh at in themselves and helping them express it. To be sure, this does not always work, and it is an incredibly difficult high-wire act, and your own feelings on Ross may vary wildly, but in terms of that one interview, I think he was on point. I think that when I say comedy should feel good, that is not the same thing as toothless. In this case, it's about the end result, which actually revolves ever more strongly around the concept that I referenced just now while talking about Ross. Kindness. Kindness is telling the truth in a way that uplifts the person hearing it and helps everyone involved have or work for a better tomorrow. Sometimes kindness spares the dark details, but not always. Which brings me back to the overall effect that any joke has upon the audience. At the end of the joke, of the story, of the tale, the audience should feel better. This is why I have such a deep loathing of the so-called cringe comedy humor that seeks to provoke not a cathartic release of joyous mirth, but rather its wildly inferior second cousin twice removed awkward laughter. This is the comedy of enjoying someone else's misfortune, often misfortune that is undeserved. The release is one of relief that it is not happening to you. The lack of catharsis inherent in cringe comedy is precisely why it does so little for me. It does not leave me feeling better, more informed about myself, or like I have a greater understanding of the emotions of other human beings. I'm not sure I have a clear th synthesis to offer at the end of this meander. If I had to sum up the feelings I've explored in the preceding ramble, it would be this. Comedy should uplift, increase understanding, and leave the audience, be they a stadium full of fans or a single individual, better than you found them. This doesn't mean you don't challenge them. This doesn't mean that you don't offer them a window into a different kind of life that they don't have or a a chance to contemplate an alternative future for all of us. But it does mean that you leave them better. If that happens, they'll probably like you, and most likely they'll throw some folding money into that hat you're waving around.
You know, I'm going to close this little section, this meander, with another Dennis Miller quote. I know. God, I know. Whatever. I'm sure somebody's going to at me and be like, this man is heinous. He eats puppies. Whatever. Like, I, I just remember every essay that he wrote in that book. He always closed with this line. Of course, that's just my opinion. I could be wrong. And that's, that's how I feel right now. It's just my opinion about comedy. I could be wrong. Uh, how about a song? Two weeks ago, I shared with you what I would say is kind of a rough draft of my new song, Sweet Cron. And I mentioned at the top of the episode that I'm recording in a studio now, and I have my tracks done for this song. So, you know, I went into the studio and I recorded ukulele and I recorded me singing. And so I've got this ukulele voice recording that uh, we're going to get some other instruments on there eventually. But this is the recording of, of my parts for Sweet Cron. So I, I hope you enjoy it. And I, I'm sharing this because I... I I just thought maybe you folks would enjoy sort of seeing this piece grow and change as it develops. So this is, I guess, like the second draft and hopefully I'll get some other instruments on there and it'll grow into something else. I hope you enjoy. This is Sweet Cron. One, two, oh, one, two, three, four. Typo, pal, you stopped. You already wanna pay for that sweet cron, that sweet cron. You know it's for sale in the wilds of Oregon. I'll buy me some a bushel, and I'll be moving on, munching on that sweet cron. As I drive across this state, I reflect that I've been here before. Used to be a lady down this way that I adored. Wait, who am I kidding? There's been several, that's for sure. Everyone abused so much it knocked me to the floor just like that. Sweet cron, oh yeah, that sweet cron. My friend, it's for sale in the wilds of Oregon. Buy me another bushel and then I'll be moving on. Munching on that sweet cron. Let's take it now. Some of this now. <laughs> <laughs> 
and it's for sale in the wilds of Oregon. So buy me a bushel and I'll be moving on. Munching on that sweet, gotta end it too sweet. I think we're done with sweet corn. <laughs> Mailbag. I still don't have any listener mail this week, but please send some stuff to me. Uh, you can send physical mail to Strangely at 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. That's my art studio. It's uh, studio number 11. So that's Strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. And I'll start doing mailbag again uh, in a few weeks. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, yeah, I will be having some chats with guests coming up in the weeks ahead. I just really wanted to start building this back into a weekly thing and sort of getting it coming out on a schedule. And then I can sort of figure out how to incorporate interviews into the release schedule. I, I hope the essays that I've been writing are interesting to you folks. So yeah, that's about it. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is produced in a secret, undisclosed location by me, Strangely Duesberg. This podcast is made possible by my incredible supporters on Patreon. Thank you folks so much. And a special thanks to my executive producer patrons, Kim Truitt and Tina Jones. You can check out patreon.com strangely to find out how you can help me make more of uh, whatever this is. this week um this is something i found in my reading this is from ludwig wittgenstein who was an austrian british mathematician logician and philosopher and he said or wrote i don't know i read it in print so maybe he wrote it but he said the boundaries of my language are also the boundaries of my world and i just yeah the boundaries of my language are also the boundaries of my world if you can talk about it, you can get to it. Or if you don't have the words for it, maybe you can't get to it. I don't know. I'll leave you all with that. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production.